February the 17th, 2021. Ash Wednesday. Uh, it's last year. We don't have Wednesday services going on, as you recall, because of the pandemic. So I decided to send a message out to my coaching group uh, at the time and invite them to try a different experience and go to the Newman Center with me uh, for the Ash Wednesday service which was a dangerous idea because at this time, we are in the middle of a game of assassin. <laughs> and I'm telegraphing my location to everybody. But, you know, faith, spiritual practice, relationship with God, that matters to me, and I want it to matter to my coaching group. So I decided to risk it. And in the text message to everyone in my coaching group, I say, look, I'm aware of the situation here. If you want to kill me, if you have me as, and I don't know if any of them have me as their target, but I say, if you want to kill me, let's handle this like men. I don't want to be like paranoid at the Ash Wednesday service. I don't want to be disrespectful of the Ash Wednesday service. Uh, so just, you know, if you've, if you've got me, contact me. We'll work it out. Not long after that, I get a text message from somebody who is not in my coaching group, Conrad who says, hey, I heard that your coaching group is uh, going to the Ash Wednesday service, and I was going to go with D-Roars earlier, uh, but I got to work for like 33 minutes. Weird, I know, right? So <laughs> would it be cool if I tagged along with you guys to the service? And I said, Conrad. Conrad, come on. I said, if you have me, just tell me. And here's the thing. I'll let you kill me. Come to the service, and I will let you kill me, but wait until after. And he's like, you know, in disbelief, as anybody would be and should be. And I say, but look, it would be such a beautiful, poetic death to die on Ash Wednesday because this is a day that is built in to remind us of our mortality, among other things. I'm like, dust to dust, come on. How about this? And we're texting about this. I was like, let's have our own little ritual after the service. Meet me there. So I show up to Ash Wednesday service. We go through the thing. Conrad also shows up to Ash Wednesday service. I told my boys, by the way, that I was like, Conrad's going to kill me after service. And they were like, why are you doing that? And I was like, it's just the right thing to do because Ash Wednesday, blah, blah, blah. So we're walking out of the building now. Conrad is at my back. I'm completely at Conrad's mercy. And my kids are literally pleading with me, Dad, why are you doing this? You don't have to let him do this. So we walk out. Conrad, would you come down here, please? So let me set the scene. We're out on the north side of the Newman building where there's just that big grass lawn. And it was, oh my gosh, it was such a beautiful night. Snow. Snow all over the ground. I mean, glistening in the streetlights, right? And we get out there, and I was like, okay, let's do this the right way. So Conrad has his gun out. I get down on my knees. I was like, a word, please? I'm down like this. Conrad literally has me at gunpoint. And I say, Conrad, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. <laughs> and I shoot him. And he is like some of you, what just happened? Because I have a gun in my glove the whole time. 
Now you might ask yourself, Reed, why would you do this? That's mean. And what I have to say is that psychological warfare is a real thing. And that it's actually very valuable to know for sure that somebody has you, that they are your assassin, right? Because then you can know who you have to worry about. You don't have to worry about 25 people. You just got to worry about one person. Um, but I also did it because I love Conrad. And he's just, he's so nice and gullible. And I just had to do it to him. <laughs> remember that you're dust. So here, here Conrad, I want to make this right. And I want to remember that I too am dust. And to dust, I'm going to return. So I want you to take that. I am your free target. Redeem yourself. So you got to hold the bottom trigger. Remember, I'm dust. Now pull the top trigger. And to dust, I will return. Give it all. Come on. Oh, gosh. He's still going. Dust to dust, baby. Thank you. Okay. Give it up for Conrad. Thank you. I'm not actually going to wear this. Thank you. This, by the way, is why I won Assassin. Ash Wednesday, or Dust Wednesday, or Dirt Wednesday, or Breath Wednesday, or Time Travel Wednesday. Here you are, right there. There you are, here you are. Today is Ash Wednesday. 44 days from now is Good Friday. Just to set the record straight, a little record keeping so that everybody understands, uh, Lent is the time between Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and that is technically 44 days, uh, but symbolically the season is 40 days to parallel the time of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and fasting. Uh, and so the way that you actually get 40 out of 44 is that you don't count the four Sundays during Lent, if you didn't know this, because they're like little sneak peeks of Easter. It's kind of fun to think of it like that. Like, yay, Easter's coming. So that's why if you're fasting something, you actually get to like relax, loosely defined, however you want to define that, relax your fast on Sundays in some traditions uh, because it's like, hey, we're anticipating Easter. Like, you don't, you don't, you don't like feast all the way, but like, you know, a little bit. Uh, so anyway, here you are. You are getting ready to cross the street of Lent on the way to Easter, and Ash Wednesday is the invitation to look both ways before you do. And it's worth taking the time to do it, I think, uh, because Easter that we're heading towards is one of the highest, holiest days, the most special days, one of the most special days for us Christians. Uh, if you didn't know, just slight spoiler alert, it's when we celebrate that death, despite its best efforts, uh, couldn't keep Jesus down, that he rose, uh, and, and with him, this abundance of new, and newness of life just exploding like a fireworks show. Uh, and, and so Lent is because, well, as others, as others have noted, feasting, it's, it's not really that fun when it's all you do, like if all you're ever doing is just like going about life as normal, eating all the time. Uh, we need rhythms of fasting and feasting. We need rhythms of solemnity and seriousness and also jubilation so that we can more fully experience the depths of all of those things. And so that's what Lent is for. It's a season of preparing us for the like insane joy of Easter 
so that it might be something more to us than just like a nice Sunday ham dinner. Like, oh, wow, it's Easter. I didn't realize it. Get out the basket. Get out the ham. Uh, it can be so much more than that. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I personally, like, I, I really want to experience the significance of days like Christmas and Easter. I personally, like, I really want to be able to soak in the meaning and let God change me through them. And I find that really that works so, so much better for me when I spend time anticipating and preparing and thinking about it at all. And so that's what these seasons are for. So day one of Lent today, Ash Wednesday. Anybody ever been to Ash Wednesday services before where they do the imposition of the ashes? Have you guys, are you guys familiar with that? Okay, some of you, not all of you. I never had until I was in college, out of college. Uh, there's a line that they say. Do you guys know the line? It's actually up there on the board. There. Remember, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. And when the priest or the preacher or uh, whichever holy person it is tells you that it is another way of telling you on this singular day, look both directions in time. Look backwards and look forwards as you begin the long trek toward the holiest weekend of all time. Remember where you come from and where you're going is another way of saying, remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. Remember where you come from and where you're going. Remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. Remember that you are dust. It's an invitation uh, first to look backwards in time. It's a remember that you are dust by the way, this line. Does anybody know where it's from? It comes from the Bible. It is a direct lift from, anybody? Genesis. It is from Genesis chapter 3. It's a sad story. Uh, if, if you remember, we're going to get to Ecclesiastes, by the way, whoever said that. We will get there. I appreciate your confidence, Zaya. If you remember, uh, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, we call them, uh, they, they fall. They, they mess things up. Uh, they listen to a voice that is not God's voice, and they trust that voice instead of trusting God, and the results are as tragic as they are familiar to us. Like I, Sometimes we think of Adam and Eve as like far away and long ago, but really their story runs right up close uh, to ours. After they eat the fruit, the story goes, the sound of God coming through the garden, the sound that used to be, uh, I think, such a comfort to them, now sends them running for cover. And so they're hiding among the trees, and God asks after them, where are you? And the man replies, he says, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Fear, shame, hiding. Anybody else familiar with some of these experiences? Like, we all know uh, what this is like. We all know what it's like to experience shame because of something that we have done. And we all know what it's like to let that shame make us afraid of what God or someone else might think if they found out. And we're all familiar with the experience of letting that shame and that fear then push us into hiding, not letting ourselves really be known, in turn, not really fully knowing anyone else. And God's response to all of this in Genesis 3 uh, is, in his wisdom and his mercy, to send them away from the garden. They get exiled. They get booted. Uh, but not before pronouncing what some people call a curse. And there's curses involved, but I, this is a small aside, but maybe it's an important theological correction. Please note, 
the next time you read Genesis 3, that God does not curse the man and the woman. Cursed be or cursed is or cursed are you. Like that's powerful language. And God only uses it in Genesis 3 for the serpent. And he also says it of the ground. But he doesn't say it of the man and the woman. And that's not to say that there aren't experiences the consequences. The people definitely experience consequences and difficulty to be sure, but God doesn't curse them. So just small aside, over, back on track now. Uh, What God does say to them ends famously with these words, dust you are, and to dust you will return. So when the reverend or the preacher or whoever pronounces these words on Ash Wednesday, uh, he he is first inviting you to consider, to look backwards, at where you come from, and realize that it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of waywardness, to remember estrangement, that we're estranged, uh, to remember sin. Sin is where we come from. Sin is uh, behind us. And it's, it's fitting that we should remember this on a day that is about confession and repentance. Frederick Buechner, he said, uh, it, is a pretty, it can be a pretty depressing business, all in all. Ash Wednesday can. Uh, and he's right. And he says, but if sackcloth and ashes are at the start of it, something like Easter may be at the end. We get in touch with fasting, something like feasting may be there. So it's something like Easter is waiting for us, let's not short-circuit the process. Let's, let's start there, which I know is not that fun. Let's start here. Let's remember uh, where we come from. And I know that it's hard, but, but here's the thing. There are worse things that we could do than to acknowledge that we, too, have listened to the voice, that we, too, have eaten the fruit, uh, to, to acknowledge that God is speaking to us in our sin as well as to Adam and Eve in theirs when he says, remember that you are dust. Like who among us hasn't done things in life that they wish they could undo? And even as I say that, like when you think if there was one thing in all your life that if you got to pick one thing you wish you could undo that thing, what would it be? And all of us can name something. Who among us hasn't looked in the mirror and felt something like regret, who hasn't thought words that we knew to be deceptive or destructive, and yet we breathed them out anyway, like who hasn't felt the pain of crossing a line knowing that you can't go back, even though you would give anything in the world to be able to, You can't go back. The thing is done. The thing is said. The way you treated your parents, the way you treated a friend, the way you treated an enemy or a stranger. The gospel is bad news before it's good news, Buechner said. The news that we are evil in the imaginations of our hearts. God help us. And I say that uh, not to be mean, not to pile on shame, not to be some curmudgeonly old minister just disgruntedly denouncing you culture that doesn't like to hear any bad things and you have feelings that get too hurt and blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to arouse any of that, but I say it simply because it is, it is a part of the truth. 
Confession can be cleansing, by the way. To cut the delusions and the wishful thinking that we have about ourselves and to just soberly acknowledge our sin and its consequences, that is a way of dying to them. And last I checked, dying is a prerequisite for resurrection. So in some way, Ash Wednesday is a prerequisite for Easter. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's an invitation to look forwards as well as backwards. Isaiah, you ready for Ecclesiastes? Here comes. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. How many of your grandparents can you name? How many of your great-grandparents can you name? How many of your great-great-grandparents can you name? How many generations do you have to go back before you can't name them all? Like three? How many before you can't name any of them? Four? I think about this a lot, maybe too much. My seventh great-grandfather was named John Dent, and I know that sounds so easy, like he was from England, make up a name, it's going to be John. (laughs) Sorry, John. John's. His name was John Dent. He was born 348 years ago in 1674 in St. Mary's County, Maryland. His father was actually from England. He was from Maryland. Uh, He died when he was 59. Without that man living that long ago, I don't exist. I'm not here. But those few facts about this crucial individual in my history, those few facts are all that I know about him, which also happens to be exactly what his gravestone knows about him. This man had a family. He had a life. I mean, this is, a, this is not an idea. This is a flesh and blood person who is my direct seventh great grandfather. He worked. I'm sure he worked. He did things that turned into stories, but I don't know any of them, and neither does anyone else. And the thing is, I can't do any better with even my second great-grandfather, Thomas, who's only been gone 110 years. He died in 1912. So this is what I'm telling you. Barely a century passes, and you are only a name on a gravestone. Not even the memory of you is left. That's the appropriate response. (laughs) laughing and clapping and stop taking yourselves so seriously. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. I remember Derek telling me how after his father-in-law, Dave, who was a preacher uh, in his life, died, Derek spent an evening with the many bound volumes of Dave's sermons, his entire preaching life's work, throwing them into a fire and watching them burn. As somebody who spends much time and energy, look, these are all words that I'm saying to you. They're all on this paper. I spend much time and energy fussing over words, and I still have copies of every manuscript that I've ever preached. Last year when Jake Wendell left, I gave him a bound volume of all the sermons I preached during his time here because he was like my biggest fan. (laughs) It was hundreds of pages. Yes, give it up for Jake Wendell. Hundreds of pages, hundreds of thousands of words, right? This act, this horrendous act, 
it gave me anxiety. Are my kids going to do the same thing? Even if they... <laughs> Briggs is always like... Briggs, after I preach, is always like, so, Dad, you were trying to sound pretty wise up there. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so heap the ashes on. But, but, but even if they don't, even if the sermons endure, will it matter? Will it matter? Everything is going to burn. Dave's sermons, my sermons, to dust it all goes. This campus ministry... This university, this country, your 401k, your promotions, your things, your vacations, your photographs, even the memories of you will not last. In the end, dust and ash are all that is left of them. Sometimes it's three years, sometimes it's 364 years, but they come, they go, they fall, they, ri they, they rise, they fall, they're born, they pass away. So remember that you are dust and to dust you will return is another way of saying when you look forward that remember, you won't last forever. You are temporary, temporary, and death. Jeez, Reed. He's up. Okay, here's the thing. The invitation to remember our impermanence can either be severely despair-inducing or it can be incredibly liberating. And it sort of depends on what you expected in the first place. Like if we had illusions or delusions that what gives our lives purpose and value is like longevity or accomplishments or memorability, if that's what you thought, despair. It's all going to go. A hundred years, everybody forgets it. But if we trust, whatever I do, it's all in God's hands, hands that span generations and cause all things, great and small, to rise and fall away, but ultimately to come together for his good purpose in his time, even if those individual components, like even if they don't endure, if we can trust that, you're free. So on Ash Wednesday, at the beginning of Lent, as we start the long trek towards Easter, we have the opportunity to look without flinching at the fact that move, the movement of our lives is, in some sense, a movement from waywardness and estrangement and sin to death. Are you concerned that I'm going to end right there? And the truth is, that is, we're not done looking. This isn't where... Uh, Ash Wednesday reflection ends. We can bracket these things off like this. Keep getting stuck behind the instruments. So, while there is a necessary and sobering, does anybody feel a little bit sobered? Anybody feel like he's dropping out of college right now? While there is, while there is a necessary, and Noah, yes, he did drop out, folks, and he's still with us. Uh, there is a necessary and sobering connection between dust and coming to grips with our own sin, our own mortality. Uh, the call to remember that we are dust and returning to dust is a call still, I think, to look further back and further ahead. There's a sphere 
beyond that one. What I'm saying is this. Dust is not inherently a bad thing or a sad thing. It, it wasn't that way in the beginning. The first time we hear dust in the scriptures, even though Ash Wednesday makes this particular utterance very famous, the first time we hear it is not actually at our exile from the garden. Dust has its scriptural beginnings not in consequence but in creation. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Before dust is a reminder of our exile from the garden, it's a reminder that we are created things, created intimately by God, who stoops down into the stuff of the world, and he takes the dust of like cells and mitosis and DNA and amniotic fluid, and he breathes into that his very spirit. I've said this before, but I imagine this moment uh, as, as close as my son and me when we share a pillow at bedtime, so close that like Jack turns into a cyclops, like I can only see one of his eyes, and we can feel the air that we're sharing from breath to breath. That's the care that God gives the dust that becomes you when he creates you. So when in Genesis 3, God tells the man on the verge of being pushed out into the world to remember that he is dust. Maybe he's not heaping on shame. Maybe is it possible that these words are, among other things, words of comfort? Remember you are dust can be another way of saying, remember you are freely created by the God who is love itself, who is goodness itself. And so therefore, you are loved. Remember that you are dust like that. So remember that you are dust. Uh, it's another way of saying that remember that your beginnings, if we go further back, are in goodness and in belovedness. In purpose, he tells them, work the garden, be my partner. We go back further, remember you were dust, tells us that. I wonder if we've perhaps spent too much time believing that the story of us begins in Genesis 3 with a fall and a so-called curse. It begins with that dust. And I wonder if we've lost something precious by just lopping off the first two chapters that are full of light and goodness and partnership and blessing and that dust. Here, before our waywardness, there is goodness and createdness and belovedness. And of course, that doesn't mean that we don't screw up terribly and that things don't go horribly wrong. But it is that Beekner, forgive me, slightly misspoke when he said the gospel is bad news before it's good news, the whole truth of it and what he must have meant to say is that the gospel is good news before it's bad news before it's good news. If when I remember that I am dust, I forget that I am dust breathed upon by the spirit of God, it can be easy to fall into despair. And from dust to dust sounds like from sin to sin, and only ever that. 
Like I come from a wrecked family and that's gonna be my destiny. From loneliness to loneliness, from being a cast out child to being a parent who casts out, from addiction to addiction, from dust to dust, that's all there is. But those things, while they're real and they're devastating, they are neither our beginning nor our end. Remember that you are dust breathed into by God himself, closest pillow talk. It's also an invitation to look ahead again. We're going to look ahead once more and see that in our breathy, dusty end is our beginning. Jeez, Reed, stop with the riddles. Okay. (laughs) Jesus died. This... I was actually, my next word is this we know, not all of us apparently. (laughs) This we know, no one disputes it. He, like everyone else, followed the path described in Ecclesiastes, and he died, returning to dust. But then, something happened that the ring did not intend. (laughs) Couldn't help myself. The surprise twist is previously stated, despite death's best efforts and intentions, couldn't keep him down. He rose. And do you know what he did then? Early on the first day of the week, this is from John 20, while it was still dark. Do you remember how the Bible begins? It's dark. Do you remember how God creates things? Like, over what period of time? A week. Do you remember how there's like, first day, second day, first day of the week while it was still dark. And in case we forgot when it was, a little bit later in the chapter, on the evening of that first day, we're still on the first day, first day, first day, Jesus, after, by the way, being in a garden, just, it's kind of fun. Mary, like, supposed he was the gardener. Wink. Jesus pops up, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. With that, what does he do? What? In the heck? Have you ever had somebody breathe on you? I actually grew up in a Pentecostal church. People did do that sometimes. You know? Yeah. But normal people, meaning non-Pentecostal people, they they don't breathe on you. Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Not an accident. Jesus is God breathing on people post-resurrection. So to be clear, we're all going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. All of your stuff is going to die. All of your actions and stories and memories and that cool thing you did that one time and your 4.0 and your whatever. It's all, it's all I died a long time ago. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, with a resurrected Christ now in the world, because we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, to remember that to return uh, to dust at its, at its furthest horizon is something other. When we say, remember that you return to dust, we mean something other than you will die and down you'll go and that'll be all there is of you. Maybe to remember that we will return to dust is also to remember that on the far end is the resurrected Christ out of the tomb, walking around, new garden, new week of creation, beginning the project by breathing into the dust once again, 
and all of our little trinkets and trophies and all of that, he somehow can take and transform and make into something for his own glory and will and kingdom. And so what if to remember that you are dust and to dust you will return uh, is to remember that your end, God willing, is as your uh, beginning. And what we get is createdness, new createdness. I like that word. And what we get is belovedness. And what we get is new purpose. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So in one sense, dust to dust means that we move from waywardness and estrangement and sin to death. But outside and encircling that, like if you could imagine circles, like completely enveloping it, the sphere around all of that, where you begin and where you end, is a movement from belovedness to belovedness. Christ, our beginning and our end. Christ, in our creation and in our recreation, it is a matter of light and love and the breath of God. Dust, in the end, inescapable. Really is where we come from. Really is where we're headed. Perhaps the question, perhaps the question isn't how to avoid accepting that we are dust, which, man, you may not realize it, but we expend so much time and so much energy trying to avoid accepting that we are dust. Maybe that's not the question, but maybe the question is, whose breath? Whose breath animates it? Whose breath gives the dust of our lives life and purpose and value? Remember that you are dust. That though you are wayward and afraid and ashamed and hiding, you are created by a God who loves you. After all, he doesn't forget when, by the way, this phrase, remember that you are dust, like it pops up again, and God remembers that we are dust. And when he remembers it, uh, what stirs up in him is not disappointment. It's not anger and rage that you're dust you stupid kid. But this, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that you're dust. All of your little failures and trinkety things. and He remembers that you are dust. He knows your frame, and what that stirs up in him is compassion for you. And looking forward, the resurrected Christ. Second Corinthians. Up there, next one. 
One more. Yeah. This is what dust can also remind us of. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Let's pray. You say to us, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Yes, Lord, we remember. We remember that that means that we sin, we hide. We remember that means that in your wisdom and mercy, we, you put us into some kind of exile. We remember that it means that the things we think are most important and that we care most about, they turn to dust. Help us all to, to remember alongside that, this Lent, uh, that remembering we are dust means that you have made us and you love us and that you are ready to recreate us and you always love us. Amen.